Okay, hey, um, let me ask you this. Um, as we jump into the sermon here in a minute, how many of you have ever been part of a team before or a, you know, an organization or some sort of you know, social grouping that had a really healthy dynamic, right? How many have ever been part of a team, part of a group, part of an office that had a really healthy dynamic? And sometimes you were part of a healthy dynamic and you didn't really even know why it was healthy. You couldn't really put your finger on it. You just kind of know or knew that things kind of worked well within that sort of soci- sociological grouping, right? And uh, maybe nobody had really thought about values or guidelines of, you know, what that unit was supposed to act like. It, it just sort of operated in a way that was healthy, right? On the flip side, some of you have been in parts of, you know, communities before or teams before or families before or offices before that were very clearly unhealthy, Right? And it's probably more likely that you're acutely aware of the way in which those organizations were unhealthy, right? Like you could probably put your finger on it. You know, it might have happened 15 years ago, but if you talk to me right now, you could probably tell me this was unhealthy, that was unhealthy, and this was unhealthy, right? And and so the truth is organizations, there's no perfect organization. There's no perfect family. There's no perfect sociological structure. Things are always going to be a mixture of good and bad, but hopefully certain organizations are going to be better than others, right? They're going to be more overtly good than bad. We're going to jump into it. We're going to talk about that today, sort of that idea. Um, But before we do it, let me take a moment and let me just uh, invite us to pray. Father, I pray that um, we would look at your word today and that you would give us a vision of uh, of maybe what what we should look like as Christians, um, whether it's as a particular uh, group of people like Seven Hills Fellowship, um, or if it's just um, a place where um, your daughters and your sons gather together um, informally even, Father. Um, I pray that you would show us how it is that we should operate with one another and what it is that others might even be able to say about us if they look at us from the outside or that we might say about ourselves from the inside. I pray that you would um, give us your spirit. I pray that through your spirit, you might give us the ability to really create um, peace and wholeness and goodness in our relationships. I pray that would be true in families. I pray that it would be true in offices. I pray that it would be true here at Seven Hills Fellowship um, for certain. I pray all these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a man named uh, Patrick Lencioni who is a business consultant. He's written a lot of books uh, and given lots of talks about healthy organizations. Now, automatically, I just lost 64% of you, okay? Because you thought, okay, that's boring. I'm going to lose it. I can't do that. Let me just tell you really quickly, this doesn't have to be about business for you, right? It can be about your family. You know, you could be a father or a mother, and you could look at your family, and you can say, you know what, I've got, I've got some stuff to learn. We're going to talk about some of the things he has to teach us in a few minutes. It could be that you're the coach of a team, right? Or it could be that you're, um, you know, you live on a hall at Shorter or at Barry, and you get to sort of set the stage and the tone for that hall. All of these things can apply um, to who you are. Patrick Lencioni, one of the books he wrote was called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And so after doing years and years of research, he looked at healthy organizations and he looked at unhealthy organizations. And as he looked at the unhealthy organizations, there were really five things that stood out. There were sort of traits of unhealthy, uh, dysfunctional teams. I'm going to read this list really quickly. We have a slide that gives you a little visual. So one one of the things he said was a dysfunction of an unhealthy team is lack of trust. Lack of trust, Okay. Now, just think about this for a second, about it in terms of an office in which you've worked at, a family in which you've lived, a team in which you've played, and think about how lack of trust might be a dysfunction. Here's a little blurb that he writes up, and again, just stay on the, on the screen until I'm done with these five. 
a little blurb he writes up is he says, do people do and say things that damage the team? Do people try to look good and refuse to admit mistakes or weaknesses, right? If people are always trying to cover themselves or make themselves look good or not look bad, then you can't really trust them to be honest and do what's best for the team. Do people keep it strictly business and would know nothing about each other outside the workplace? In other words, part of this lack of trust is you don't trust yourself to people in your family unit on that team. And then he says, is everyone in it only for themselves? In other words, you don't trust somebody because you know they're really just in it for themselves. That's one of the main dysfunctions of an unhealthy team. The second thing he talks about is fear of conflict. He says, uh, do people avoid having difficult conversations, right? I don't know about you guys, but that's really high up on my list because I absolutely avoid having difficult conversations, right? He says, do we skirt around obvious issues and change the subject if they're brought up? Do people insist that everything's fine but complain behind each other's backs? Are we just super nice to each other, right? Basically, what he says is, that's actually not a sign of a healthy team. That's a sign of an unhealthy, dysfunctional team when you're afraid of conflict. Again, team, family, right? Organization that you work for. The third thing he talks about is lack of commitment. Do people work on their own projects and not on team deliverables? In other words, are people pulling in different directions? Are they acting selfishly? Do people directly or indirectly not support team decisions? Do we avoid resolutions and actions in our meetings? In other words, do we uh, try to make sure we don't get too much put on our plate? Do we have talk fests with no outcomes, right? That's the third sign or dysfunction of a team. Avoidance of accountability is number four. Are we not setting deadlines or team performance measures? Do we avoid giving each other constructive feedback? Do we ignore it when a team member is letting the side down? Do we avoid debating ideas and challenging the team's status quo? Do we not seem to care when we let people down? One of the signs of an unhealthy team, an unhealthy family, an unhealthy organization is when there's sort of an avoidance of accountability. I've been on teams like that before. I've been in, in offices like that before where there's sort of, you know, a kind of a wink, wink, like, you know, I'm not going to hold you accountable if you don't hold me accountable, right? That would be horribly unhealthy. Number five, inattention to results. Is everyone working hard, but we're not measuring the collective impact of what we do? In other words, everybody's working harder, but not smarter would be the business speak. Are we letting important milestones go by without celebrating our achievements? One of the things that healthy organizations do is they celebrate wins, right? They, they share in those wins with the rest of the team, right? Are we missing opportunities to highlight the importance of our work? Now, as I read through those five dysfunctions of a team, I can very easily, and maybe you can very easily, but I can very easily look at my own family and I can say, man, there are any number of different things that in my family I need to make sure that we work on. Right? As I read this, I looked at our church, Seven Hills Fellowship, and I said, good grief. There's all sorts of things that I'm guilty of. Right? I don't have time to blame anyone else because I've got too many of these things on my own list. Right? Um, and we could talk about those things. What's interesting, however, is that one of the things we see in Scripture is that Scripture does give us an idea of what a healthy church should look like. Right? In fact, it gives us lots of ideas. Right? What does is, what is a healthy community of Christians look like? So not just Seven Hills Fellowship, but when Christians are gathered together, what should those communities look like? In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, again, we sang it earlier this morning, but that section of Scripture gives us several different ideas or several different characteristics or pictures of what a healthy team ought to look like, a healthy group of believers. Let me read verses 19 through 25 again. 
And again, there's actually quite a few in here. I'm not going to talk about um, many of them, but I am going to talk about four. But listen really quickly, if, I, if you will, while I'm reading verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So what we see here in Hebrews chapter 10 is really kind of a list of various traits of what a healthy grouping of believers, Christians, might look like, right? And I'm going to look at four. We're just going to look at four because there's really too many to sort of focus on. But we're going to begin by looking in verse 24, where we read that part of a healthy organization, part of a healthy church, is that we consider one another. We consider one another. Verse 24 says, and let us consider. And of course, the verse goes on. But the word there for consider is essentially taken from a Greek word, which is katanoeo. And the definition of that word is essentially to think long and hard about something, to ponder the wisest and the best course of action. In other words, part of what's happening there as we consider one another is instead of thinking about ourselves, we're thinking about other people. And we're not just sort of thinking about them as quickly as possible. We're really taking time to think long and hard about what's best for them. Uh, I just finished reading a book um, not too long ago by a counselor named Larry Crabb, a Christian counselor. And uh, he's, you know, one of the industry standards in counseling for Christian folks. And, um, you know, he basically said, um, and he affirms lots of, you know, uh, current um, broad psychology. He's not an oppositional guy at all. But one of the things he says is, you know, what happens in a lot of broad psychology is that broad psychology will tell you the number one problem in humanity is self-loathing. And he absolutely agrees that is a problem. Self-loathing is a bad thing. But he basically says, I would argue that the most dangerous and detrimental thing in human psychology is actually not self-loathing, but it's self-centeredness. And part of what he writes in the book that I read is he basically says that human beings um, are just absolutely so utterly and completely self-centered, self-focused, self-infatuated, that even when we do good things, we're ultimately kind of really doing them uh, because it's what's best for us. Does that make sense? And what's interesting is if you take a look at Jesus, one of the things that we see that Jesus did was he did exactly the opposite of that. He was amazingly other-centered, right? He self-sacrificed. He gave up his power. He gave up his position. He gave up his comfort, all of these things, in order to consider us, right? In order to consider what's best for us, for his children, for his people, right? And we follow Jesus. We look at his example and we go, okay, you did that for us. We should do that for one another, right? So let me ask you one, for one second. What happens when you consider someone else, when you think long and hard about what's best for them? What happens? I've got a little list here. Well, one thing that happens when you consider others, when you think long and hard about who they are and about what they might need and about what might be best for them is you don't react in a way that you'll regret. Or let me say it this way. You're less likely to react in a way that you'll regret. You know, so often we react in our default ways, right? Some of us tend, uh, when we're interacting with other people, to move into blaming, right? 
you know, we blame them. We, we basically say, well, if they didn't do this, then I wouldn't have done that. We, we ultimately blame them for the decisions we make. Or maybe our default setting is to shame other people, right? Maybe what we do is we have self-contempt, and so we take that self-contempt and we try to put it on other people, and we, we highlight their shame so we feel less bad about ourselves. Maybe when we don't consider others, maybe we respond in anger, right? Not realizing that down deep beneath that anger is probably some sort of a good, healthy desire within us. Others, when we don't take the time to consider one another, we might um, avoid conflict when it's necessary and when it's healthy. And maybe by considering one another, we realize, you know what, what's really loving for my husband, what's really loving for my child, what's really loving for that coworker, what's really loving for that person in church is actually not that I avoid the conflict, but rather that I maybe move into it, right? Chances are you are sort of wired in a certain way, right? What else happens when you consider, think long and hard about other people? Well, one of the things that magically happens is you allow yourself to see things through their eyes, right? You you allow yourself to see things from their point of view. Uh, In Philosophy 101 at any college, you know, across the country, you might take a class, Philosophy 101, one of the things that that class will talk about is the egocentric predicament, the egocentric predicament. What the egocentric predicament is, is it basically says it's just really hard because our default setting is only to see things from our own point of view, and it leads to all sorts of brokenness and trouble. And part of what happens when we consider other people and think long and hard about who they are and what they might need is it slowly allows us to see things through their point of view. What happens when you consider someone else? You begin to think about what they might need and desire instead of what you might prefer or what you might want. You know, whether our kids believe this or not, Krista and I probably spend about 85% of our times doing this very thing, really considering, thinking long and hard about what's best for them, about what's good for them, about what would be loving for them. Now, maybe we don't do such a good job sometimes of seeing things through their point of view or their eyes, but we are trying, right? We are thinking long and hard about what's best for them. And then finally, what happens when we consider other people? Sometimes when you consider other people, um, you end up listening to them, right? Just let me say that again. Sometimes when you consider other people, you actually quit thinking your own thoughts and you quit thinking your own preferences. You quit trying to defend yourself And you come into a place where you're able to just hear them, right? You're able to just listen to what they have to say, right? There's a buddy of mine went through um, a year-long course, and in the midst of that course, it was basically pop psychology and some other things. But one of the things that came out in this course that he took, and it was sort of a business psychology thing, he said, you know, the teachers taught them that usually what's happening when you're in a conversation with someone else is you're not really listening to them. You're just getting ready to ask your next question, or to say the next thing you care about, or to try to turn it around back to something you're interested in, right? When you consider other people, it actually uh, moves you to a place where you're able to listen to them and to think about what they might be feeling, to see things from their perspective. In Christianity, we might actually call this humility, right? We might actually call this, you know, sort of learning to think less of ourselves and more about them. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, in a section called The Great Sin, writes about humility, and I think we've got it up on the screen. He says this, To even get near humility, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in the desert, right? To come close to somebody who's truly humble, it's like a drink of cold water in the desert. And just think for a minute, you you know what I'm talking about, right? It may have been in high school with that older lady who just took an interest in you, 
right? It may have been your youth pastor at some church who just took an interest in you. It may have been someone that was a family friend or someone you worked with, but there are these rare people that have the ability at one moment just to make you feel like you're the only person on the earth at that moment when they listen to you. It's like a drink of cold water. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him, right? And what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Does that make sense? And ultimately, Christian humility is, again, the ability to consider someone else in all of these various ways, so much so that they're more important than you are. It's what Jesus did. And remember, the context of this entire passage goes back to that Hebrews uh, chapter 10, 19. It's the gospel, right? It's basically where probably Paul is telling us we have the ability to come into the presence of God because of what Jesus did for us. Jesus laid down his life, his preferences, his comfort for us. He considered, he thought long and hard about us, right? About what we needed. And when the truth of the gospel works in us, when it works its way down deep into our hearts, we're enabled to lay down our agendas and to consider one another. We must consider one another. Not just consider one another in a vacuum, however. The second thing that we see in this passage is that we should also spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That's what verse 24 says. So we must spur one another on. Now, we're going to get ready in a second for a video clip, which I messed up on, so I apologize. It's going to be a little bit jinky to get it up there. But let me, as, as um, Luis is sort of moving over to it, let me say this. this. This word that's being translated here, spur one another on, is paroxysmon. And essentially, it's a Greek word which means to incite or to irritate or to motivate or to compel someone into action. And so very quickly, I'm going to show you just a teeny little clip of someone who does just that. And it's, you're going to want to watch this later on because it's a pretty awesome speech. So let me just turn it over to the guy who's speaking for Georgia Tech here. Okay, so, like I said, you're going to want to watch that, because all, the, the crowd is filled with all these freshmen, you know, they're incoming students at Georgia Tech, and what he's doing is he's spurring them on to try to achieve everything. I had to cut it off there because he said a bad word. I mean, whatever, a little bad. bad. Bad enough that I probably shouldn't play it in church. Anyway, point is, um, part of what a healthy organization looks like, part of what a healthy group of Christians looks like is that we don't just consider one another, but we consider how to, to spur one another on towards or to love and good deeds, right? Love and good deeds. In fact, the, again, the Greek here is agape and kalon ergon, which basically means unconditional love and beautiful works, right? We're to spur one another on to unconditional love. Who can argue with that, right? Who, who really should be argue, able to argue with us practicing unconditional love, right? That's, that's unarguable. Who can argue with the fact that we're called to do beautiful works, right? That's not just beautiful works for one another, but it's beautiful works for uh, the city of Rome, Georgia, right? It's beautiful works for your neighbors, right? It's beautiful works for things you might not ever get credit for or might not ever benefit you. But we're called to unconditional love and we're called to beautiful works, right? And the assumption here in this, uh, this admonition 
is that those things don't come naturally to us, right? We've already talked about how we struggle with the egocentric predicament. We struggle with self-centeredness, right? And so ultimately, we're being spurred on to do things that we might not naturally do or probably wouldn't naturally do or want to do. That's why we need to be spurred on to unconditional love, because we want to love with conditions, right? Like, we want to help the person who is going to respond in the way that we want them to respond, right? We want to love the person who's going to serve us reciprocally, right? We want to love the person for whom it's going to be a 50-50 relationship, right? And ultimately, again, what we're told here is that a healthy church spurs one another onto unconditional love, right? Why else would we want to be spurred on to beautiful deeds? Because we want to perform selfish deeds, right? That's the kind of deed I like. I like the kind of deed where I do something and somebody's going to pay me back. I like to do the kind of deed where I get credit for it. I like to do the kind of deed that just benefits me, but we need to be spurred on to unconditional love, right, and beautiful acts, beautiful things for the sake of those uh, people that maybe aren't going to reciprocate, who aren't going to love us back, who aren't going to serve us back. But a healthy church, a healthy group of Christians not only considers one another, but spurs one another on towards love and good deeds. Consider, spur one another on, point number three third thing that we see in this passage that occurs in a healthy sort of organism of believers is that we persevere with one another. We persevere with one another. Verse 25 says, not giving up, meeting together, right? And so essentially, the Greek phrase there simply means, you know, that we don't abandon one another. We don't desert one another. We don't leave one another behind, right? In the words of Iceman and Top Gun, never, never leave your wingman, right? Anybody seen Top Gun? Okay, yeah. Nobody. Anyway, I'll give you another example. Um, don't, don't leave one another behind. Don't abandon your brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, when I was in college, in my sophomore year, you guys have heard this story umpteen times, but this is a variation on it. But um, one of the guys, we, had a, we were hanging out in one of the rooms. We all played soccer together. And uh, there were probably you know, six of us in this room. We were just talking about life and living and how hard it is to live life. And one of the guys said, you know, how many of your fathers have close friends? And uh, we all kind of said, well, none of our fathers. Like, nobody's father had close friends. So, so each of us, our, we looked at our dads, and our dads were kind of living these isolated lives. And so one of the guys said, what if, what if we made a decision to sort of be lifelong friends for one another, right? And he was just sort of floating the idea. And so that group of us in this room, which is now, of course, you know, 25 years ago, um, decided to do the, just that, and we get together still now three times a year. I just got back from these guys a couple weeks ago. But one of the guys, guys that was in that room, in that initial discussion, was part of our group for a while. But little by little, this guy um, started sort of leaving our group. And initially, the reason he left our group is because he was dating a girl um, who we probably were like, eh, I don't know if that's so good. And there began to be um, drug usage and some other things in that relationship. And I think the more that he began to prefer that relationship, the more he um, sort of fell away from our sort of group of guys, if that makes sense. And it's understandable and sad at the same time. And so little by little, he sort of fell out of this group of guys that I've been now with for 25 years. It was interesting. We were together as a group a couple years ago for Christmas up on Lookout Mountain. And uh, this guy had come back in town to see some family and uh, it was interesting because the, the other, you know, the five of us who've been meeting together for the last 25 years, we were happy and doing great, and we we're, you know, kind of loving on each other and everything. We ran into him. We were so happy to see him. And we said, how are you doing? And uh, you could just tell that his countenance fell. Man, he was depressed. He was broken. Um, 
he had just gone through a divorce with um, his wife, someone who'd gotten you know pregnant out of wedlock, and essentially she had um, gone on to do some different things and, and made some choices to leave uh, the family behind, and so he was taking care of you know, three little kids, and he was working a tough job, and he, he was a long way away from family. He was miserable. And then I ran into his brother about a month and a half ago, and I said, hey, how's so-and-so doing? And he said, man, not good. You know, he's just, he's unhealthy physically, emotionally. He's just depressed. He just got a second girlfriend pregnant. You know, he's trying to live life, but it's just, you know, such a mess. And, and again, I think that's part of the reason that here in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25, we're told that we must persevere with one another because there's a very real sense in which when we do that, when we remain with one another, when we remain in these healthier relationships, we're way better off, we're way healthier, we're much more fully human than if we try to do it by ourselves or on our own, right? What does it mean to not give up meeting with one another? One implication is you do continue to come to worship together. That's usually how it's defined, and that's a true thing. But it also means more than that. It means a call to true community. That's, again, one of the marks of what a healthy church or group of Christians should look like. And Acts chapter 2 may be our best picture of that. I'm going to read it really quickly just so that you get an idea of what it looks like to persevere with one another. Verse 42 of Acts 2 says this, They, that is the apostles, this is after Jesus died, and they're kind of left on their own, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, right? In other words, it was relatively intense. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Uh, that list of things there is a little bit of an ancient liturgy, and so it basically says not only was it an, an intense, sort of intentional community, but it was really centered around worshiping God. It was a spiritual sort of gathering. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. In other words, the, this group of believers gathering together, it was intense, right? It was spiritual, but it was also physical. It was communal. It was, it was sort of saying, we're going to take care of each other even when it's hard, even when it hurts. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and so they got together regularly, right? They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They spent life together, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. In other words, it was exemplary, right? The, the society around looked at them and said, man, uh, they take care of each other, right? They hang out together. They love one another. And, uh, and it was attractive to the outside community. It says this, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In other words, it was, it was missional, right? It wasn't just sort of um, a group of people who just sort of huddled up to be a home for one another, They were inward-focused, but they were also outward-focused. They also said, hey, man, we don't want to just love each other unconditionally. We want to love other people unconditionally as well. So again, why why are we told this in this passage? The reason we're told this in this passage is because, again, we're radically egocentric, right? We're radically self-centered. And not only psychologically are we radically egocentric and self-centered, but as a culture, we even now have reached a point in America where that's sort of lauded as one of the greatest good, right? In fact, what sociologists call America right now is an, an enlightenment, individualistic society, right? In other words, our culture's highest ideal value, our culture's greatest good is personal freedom, no matter what it means. You get to choose who you are, what you are, how you want to live, and that's the greatest good in our society. The problem is 
we can kind of see the breakdown of society as a result of that. Our calling, again, as believers, is not only to attend church, it's more than that. Our calling is to practice real, committed, selfless, gospel-motivated relationships with one another. We're called to consider one another. We're called to spur one another on to love and beautiful deeds. We're called to persevere, right, to stick it out with one another, even, even when it'd be easier not to or preferable not to. And finally, we're told in this passage to encourage one another. Listen to verse 25. It says this, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Encouraging one another, right, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The word here in encouraging is parakaleo or paraclete, right? You've heard that term probably if you're churchy. And, uh, and the, the actual literal definition of that is to walk alongside of someone, to walk alongside of someone. And so figuratively, it means to be with someone who's suffering for the purpose of exhorting them or encouraging them or giving them consolation just by your presence, right? That's, that's what this word means. It means walk with one another, side by side, walk with one another. How many of you in this room remember anything from the 1992 Olympics? You can raise your hand. Anybody? Right? One person, two people maybe? Yeah, a couple people. Not many, right? I was, whatever I was, I was uh, 20 years old in 1992, and I remember two things. One, I remember Carl Lewis, I think, won lots of gold medals. Maybe that was 1988. What's interesting is the most memorable thing out of the 1992 Olympics isn't about someone who won, but it's about somebody who lost, right? And so you guys maybe have heard this story before. There's a man named Derek Redmond. Derek Redmond was a sprinter um, and ran the 400 uh, for Great Britain. So what's interesting is re- leading up to uh, the, the Olympic Games, he had set the, the record that year for the fastest time in the 400. He was favored to win. Everybody thought he's going to take it. In the first round um, of the Olympics, he ran the 400. He ran the fastest time, the fastest heat of the whole um, first round. And so he was going on to the finals, and again, everybody thought, he's going to win, it's, there's no, it's a no-brainer. And so he goes out there, he lines up, and you know, the gun goes off, and all these incredibly you know, fast athletic human beings take off running the 400. And you know, 100 yards in, he's right where he needs to be. 150 yards in, he's pulling away. 200 yards, he's doing great. At the 250-meter mark, he pulls up with a torn hamstring and falls to the ground, right? Here's this guy who's supposed to win. Like, he's on his way to the gold medal. This is everything he's given his life for and trained for. He's done everything to reach this point. And here he is. He's laying on the track, crumpled. He begins to stand up and to sort of hobble his way for the last 150 meters. And his father, all of a sudden, you can see there's a sort of a commotion in the crowd. And, uh, and it's his father trying to fight his way through the crowd. And, and his father reaches a certain point where he's at the fence, and he jumps over the fence. And, um, and as he runs uh, out onto the track, the security guards try to stop him, and he kind of brushes them aside, and then he makes his way to his... Um he makes his way to his, his suffering son. And uh, it's funny, because before his dad uh, got there... Um, Derek Redmond had this, you know, sort of stoic look on his face, like, I got this. I'm going to make this last 150 meters. And I don't, you can't really tell it because the picture is grainy. It's not good. You can watch it. Please watch the video clip. But it was interesting. As soon as his dad gets there, he just breaks down, right? He starts weeping. And, uh, you know, his dad grabs him by the arm, and um, Redmond throws his arm around his dad's shoulder, and, uh, and they walk, um, not run, 
to the finish line, right? And so the most memorable event of the 1992 Olympics isn't about somebody winning the 100 meters or the marathon, but rather the most memorable event of the 1992 Olympics is a man who came in dead last, right? A man um, for whom nothing went right, uh, but ultimately the reason it's the most memorable is because his father walks with him all the way to the end and suffers with him. Does that make sense? That's, that's kind of what Hebrews chapter 10 is talking about. Hebrews chapter 10 is talking about parakaleo, coming alongside other people who are suffering, right? Coming alongside of other people who, for whom life is really hard, coming alongside of other people who life didn't work out the way that they thought it was going to work out, coming alongside of other people who are just about ready to give up, right? Coming alongside of other people in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their hurt, right? It, it, Hebrews 10 doesn't say, come alongside of someone and give them advice. Sometimes that's the right thing to do. Um, it doesn't say to join with them and sort of talking about how terrible everything is and blaming other people. It simply says we're told to walk with one another in suffering. Why? We're told to walk with one another in suffering because it's exactly, precisely what Jesus did for us. It's what he did with us, right? Our motivation is not to earn God's love, right? We don't consider one another, spur one another on, right? We don't do any of those things in order to earn God's love, right? We don't do those things because we fear that if we don't, we'll earn God's displeasure. The reason we do it is because we've been shown grace. We've been shown mercy because Jesus came and walked alongside of us, right, in the midst of our brokenness and suffering. Listen to verses 19 and 22 through 22 of Hebrews chapter 10. It says this, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have a confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, in other words, to come into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus, not because of your good works, not because of the absence of your bad stuff, but by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, the reason that we love one another, we spur one another on, the reason we encourage one another, right? The, the reason that we consider one another is because it's what Jesus did for us. That's called the gospel. The good news of this message of Christianity is not that God loved us because we were beautiful, but the good news is rather that he's making us beautiful because he loves us. Does that make sense? And the way for him to make us beautiful was because he ultimately through the giving of his only son to come and live a life that we weren't able to live and weren't going to live, right? The reason that we're able to be beautiful before God, the way he makes us beautiful, is not only did Jesus live that life, but he died a death, right? He, he basically accepted the punishment that we deserved on the cross. He stood in our place and was punished for us so that God could declare that we are righteous, that he could declare that we're not guilty. That's good news, right? It's considering what we needed, right? It's laying down his preferences for us. His, um, his agenda, to some degree, simply became, what can I do to love those people who need me? This morning around the room, we have tables, and on those tables there's bread and wine, or bread and grape juice on the left, bread and wine on the right. And what these tables represent is something called the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or communion. Different places call it different things. But ultimately what this meal represents is the gospel. And so those of you who are kind of have been churchy, you've been sort of in church for a while, you understand probably 
that what this meal means, it's a declaration of the gospel. It's a declaration that you're not guilty, right? Some of you are racked with guilt, just absolutely eaten up with guilt over something that happened in high school or college or even three years ago. You're just racked with guilt. And part of what this meal says is that God says, in front of me, in my eyes, you're not guilty because I took your guilt and I put it on my son, right? And some of you, right, you're so aware that you don't measure up to God's standards. You're so aware that you deserve punishment, right? That's what you think about maybe. Maybe you feel self-loathing might be what, you know, psychologists would call it. And part of what this meal sort of says to you is, listen, God has no more anger for you. There's no judgment for you. There's no punishment for you. He punished his son in your place. And so when God looks at you, he smiles upon you is what the Aaronic blessing says, right? Right? There are all these things that this meal represents. It means that when you take this bread and you dip it in the wine and you, you take it and you eat it into your body, you take it into your body, what it means is, is that God says to you, I've made you beautiful. I'm doing everything that was required, right? This, me- this meal says, you're not guilty. This meal says, you're innocent. This meal says, you're forgiven. This meal says, I'm not angry with you. This meal says, I love you. Does that make sense? Right? That's the beauty of this meal. It's the reason why, as a group of Christians, we can consider one another. We can spur one another on, right? We can encourage one another. We can persevere because ultimately, it's not about us. It's about what's been done for us, right? And so in a moment, I'm going to read the words of institution. I'm going to invite you to take this meal of bread and wine that signifies all those things. But before I do it, a couple of quick things. One, if you're not a believer, like if you're not to the point where you're saying, I trust in Jesus alone, right, solely for my righteousness, for my ability to stand before God, if you're not quite to that point, it's totally fine. Nobody's paying attention. But I would invite you to simply sit back and watch um, those people who've come to that point celebrate this meal together. That's one thing. Secondly, this meal is precisely for people who are broken, right? In fact, it's only for people who are broken, right? This meal is precisely for people who know they don't measure up. It's precisely for people who struggle with self-loathing. It's precisely for people who remember those things that they've done that may have made them feel so guilty and so dirty. Um, But it's precisely for those very people who say, with a strong faith or an incredibly weak faith, I believe that all of my sins have been forgiven, right? I believe that my righteousness isn't in me, but it's in Jesus, my big brother, and my Savior, my substitute. Let me read the words of institution, and then we'll pray. I'll ask you simply take some time, ponder, worship, and receive the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death to yourself, to one another, until he comes. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, the admonition that we see in Scripture of what it is that a healthy group of Christians should look like. And uh, Father, I pray that um, you would do that in us at Seven Hills Fellowship, um, in various groups of Christians, whether it's other churches or people that aren't affiliated with churches, whatever it is, but where Christians gather together, Father, I pray that you would give them your spirit um, to make those things happen, right? That they would encourage one another, they would consider one another, they would persevere with one another, they would spur 
one another on. Father, I pray that you would do that for your glory and for their good. Um, Father, not only do I pray that, but Father, for those in this room this morning that are preparing to receive this Lord's Supper, I pray that um, uh, your declaration of, uh, of not guilty would be louder um, than their conscience, right? That, that your, your voice would drown out their own voice. Father, I pray that um, your voice saying, you're beautiful to me, would be louder than um, other voices which might tell them that they're ugly. Let your voice drown them out. Um, Father, for those people in this room this morning who hear uh, loudly, um, whether internally or from the world or maybe from parents or other people, that they are unloved, Father, I pray that this meal today would declare to them um, again, loudly, that you love them, that you love them so much that you sent your only son um, in order to live and to die, in order to draw them uh, closer and closer to you, to draw them back to yourself, to make them whole, to help them to be fully human. Father, let us believe that. Let us hear your voice in this meal today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.